From USC Annenberg Media, this is The Listening Well, How COVID Changed Everything. Stories by USC grad students from all over the world. I'm Kelly McEvers. Now that the World Health Organization has declared COVID-19 is no longer a global emergency, a lot of us are thinking about all the changes in our lives. Change, of course, is inevitable during and after a massive event like this. But now what? Things are different. What do we do with all the change? That's what we'll be talking about in this episode, acting on it. Sitlali Chavez has the story of what workers are doing. In 2009, I moved to L.A. for college and quickly became captivated by the city's labor history and cultural life. After graduating, I was offered a job as a rep for one of L.A.'s most iconic labor unions, United Service Workers West. I worked with the janitors, or as they're known in L.A. labor circles, the Jays, or Los Janitors. Back in the 80s, the labor movement had not yet embraced immigrant workers. But the Jays showed this country it was possible for immigrant workers to organize, like Latina immigrant women. And lately, everywhere I look, workers are unionizing. They're all saying, enough. But we've also been hearing about new sectors of workers demanding unions. People we might not traditionally associate with unions. Museum workers. They're also saying, enough. So I wanted to know, how did this happen? How did COVID impact the museum worker movement? I wanted to hear from the workers themselves, like Anna Marfleet, an art handler at LA's Museum of Contemporary Art. You have to deal with like dangerous situations with like heavy objects, you know? Um, and I think that, you know, the perception that um, Museum worker cultural work is some kind of privilege, I think is something that leadership at museums lean on really, really hard. Anna moved to L.A. from Philadelphia in the middle of COVID. She'd been an art major and picked up art handling skills by hanging her own shows and those of her friends. Shortly after, Anna found a job at MoCA. When she started her new job, her co-workers were already in the middle of bargaining a union contract. As I spoke with Anna and other workers, I heard an underlying thread that work issues that had been lingering for a long time began to get even worse during the pandemic. When you're going into work every single day and you're being like screamed at by guests who don't want to wear masks and like you have to move like a 2,700 pound bronze crate and you don't have enough people and you're afraid that it's going to tip over. Sitlali reports that during this time, MoCA laid off a lot of its staff, which left workers without health care when they needed it most. Eventually, though, after 14 months of negotiations, the workers and the museum ratified a contract. Here's Sitlali again. Back in L.A., I met Ed Carter, who has archived Oscar-nominated documentary films for nearly 30 years. He always dreamed of forming a union at his workplace. But years before, when workers suffered increased workloads and huge pension cuts, they hadn't successfully pushed back. I mean, we've had grievances for many years, but the Academy is kind of notorious for being not in favor of having unions. 
But then in September 2021, the Motion Picture Academy opened a new museum shortly after George Floyd was killed. It was a time when the spirit of fighting against injustice was in the air. I didn't realize at a time, but I, but you know, I probably maybe in the back of my mind thought, well, if they're getting, if they can do it, then that why can't we do it? Now, Ed's workplace is in the middle of bargaining its first contract, and he's excited about belonging to a union once again. While a lot of museums were forced to close or downsize during the pandemic, one small L.A. foundation is going strong. Finnish journalist Erka Mikkonen discovered it and has this story about its subject, Tom of Finland. World War II. A young Finnish soldier walks the front lines fighting Soviet troops. It was here in war that this man from Finland was forced to confront his deepest fears and shame. The soldier's friend remembers. He had to stab a Russian paratrooper in the back who had landed in a field where he was patrolling. The next morning at dawn, he went back to the body and he turned the body over. And when he saw the handsome young man that he had killed, he wept on his chest uncontrollably. And he told me that from that day on, he never would really point his gun directly at his enemy. Over eight years later, and nearly 6,000 miles away, the vision of that young soldier, Tom of Finland, is still alive. A vision of sexual freedom and fearlessness, a vision that was way ahead of its time. Tom's closest confidant, Dirk Dehner, is now the curator and fierce defender of that dream. The Leatherman had his hand on the shoulder of a naked man sitting on a tree stump, both of them looking directly at the viewer. Dirk describes a drawing of world-famous artist Tom of Finland. Dirk is a co-founder of the Tom of Finland Foundation. He can just close his eyes and see every detail of his favorite piece from Tom. And the naked man had his hand on the boot of the uh, leather man. And you could see the relationship and how they were so secure in each other and yet so open. And I saw that and I went, that's what I want. That's what I want to emit and to present with my partners. And so I bought that piece. Okay, yeah. So do you want We are sitting on the black leather sofa in Dirk's living room in Echo Park, Los Angeles. There are drawings of Tom's confident and proud gay men everywhere throughout the house. It's not only Dirk's home, but also the site of the largest collection of Tom's work in the world. That's an archival recording of Touko Laaksonen, who was born in Finland in 1920. 
he became known to the world as Tom of Finland. He was a groundbreaking gay artist in a time when homosexuality was considered an illness and something to be ashamed of. You might have seen Tom's drawings, the hypermasculine men wearing leather pants with joy on their faces. But you have probably seen his influence on popular culture. Take for example the style of the policeman from Village People. And when he had a public appearance, there was long lines of guys that were standing there so patiently just to be able to shake his hand and tell him that they thanked him for what he had given them. And I went, wow, he's not just a fine artist. He's actually changed society. He's changed the way that these guys perceive themselves. I then realized that I had a purpose, and the purpose that I had was to serve this man in any way I could, forever how long it took, and uh, it's still going on today. So what is so special about Tom's work? Before I came out to my family, I struggled for a long time to accept my sexuality. But Tom of Finland never seemed to have that shame. The thing is, it was his sister. His younger sister did not want him to come out and share the family name of Loxanen uh, because she was ashamed of him. She had shame, and he had no shame. Nowadays in Finland, you can find Tom of Finland bed linens, towels and home goods with Tom's drawings and even postal stamps. Tom of Finland has become a household name that every Finn knows. But it wasn't always like that. What happened two years before he passed, he decided that it was enough. He had been hidden long enough and people misinterpreted it. It wasn't that he was ashamed. He was completely at one with being out and being Tom of Finland in everywhere around the world. In many ways, Tom's art was his own war against homophobia and shame. But it wasn't until Tom was in his 60s that he understood how his work shaped the way people saw homosexuality. I want to build some kind of superman, gay men, which were free, handsome and happy doing what they did. I feel happy now seeing that, that there's a gay pride in today's world that really the guys which I made in the beginning just in fantasy drawings, they really exist today. And the most beautiful thing is the night before he passed, he was home in his apartment and he called me and uh, he said, Dirk, I've been watching the news and they're talking about me on the news. And I, uh, I'm so happy, you know? And, and you could feel his joy coming through the phone. And uh, it was that night that he passed. Doko Laaksonen died in 1991. But Tom of Finland continues to be as important as ever, inspiring everyone to be who they are without shame. He represents us. He represents ourselves. 
He represents freedom. After the COVID lockdowns, reporter Jen Byers started having flashbacks of covering intense stories as a video journalist and of an abusive relationship. She ended up in the hospital after attempting to take her own life. But then, when the 2020 protests started, things changed for Jen. So many people called me for help. They had seen my years of reporting on protest and conflict, and they wanted to know what to do. How could they get tear gas out of their eyes? How did they bail their friends out of jail? What sort of goggles would protect from rubber bullets? My knowledge? My flashbacks? The same memories that almost killed me? They were able to help others, and helping them helped me too. I got strong enough to realize I want to fight back. I began to train. Back off! Let go! Inside this strategy of self-defense, we talk about six self-defense tactics. Those six tactics are escape, strike, voice, body language, comply, and tell. I made a bunch of new friends. And after two years of trauma therapy, to make sure I wouldn't hurt myself again, I began to practice with weapons for self-defense. During her training, Jen met the owner of a gun store. So when the gun store owner started to flirt with me, and when he promised to keep me safe, I believed him. Until one night, he told me he wanted a trad wife. Then he told me another secret, that he hit people, like girls, like a lot. And he'd already had thoughts of hurting me too. It turns out the gun store owner was a domestic abuser. And he used his shop to reel in the same vulnerable people he said he was there to protect. At first, I began to fight myself again. I thought this problem was too heavy to fix. But then I remembered my training. Tell is our last tactic, and tell is about prevention and it's about healing. When we tell, when we talk about what has happened to us or what we have seen, this allows other people to be safer. This allows us to raise the safety and raise the standards in our community. I called my friends. And we decided to out him. This is a community warning. This, this is, a is a community warning. warning. Has a history of abusing women, femmes, and intimate partners. Including with physical violence. Including with physical violence. Including with physical violence. 
We passed this message around town telling vulnerable people what he was capable of. And you know, I gotta admit, it felt way better to fight this bad guy than it did to fight myself. This pain felt so much less heavy when I shared it. You see, isolation, domestic abuse, and sexual violence are at the root of so many other issues. And someone who hits their loved ones is five times more likely to kill them if they have access to a gun. Domestic violence increased worldwide during the pandemic, while suicide and self-harm rates are currently rising in America. And yeah, being a victim of abuse makes you at least three times more likely to try and kill yourself. So if someone is threatening to hit you or take your bodily autonomy away, please remember my story and know that even if you might be scared, you're not alone. You don't have to fight this all by yourself. Your fear ain't too heavy to fix. Americans are notoriously bad at death. And yet, with thousands of people dying every day at the height of COVID, we were all forced to confront it. Reporter Colton Lucas wanted to find out how the pandemic changed how we think about death and dying. He talked to Kathleen Rodriguez at UCLA Ronald Reagan Medical Center. We've gotten good at talking to families about their loved ones, not about their death, but who they were in life. Kathy is a registered nurse in the Neurotrauma ICU. She's one of many nurses involved in the hospital's Three Wishes program, which focuses on fulfilling the wishes of patients who are imminently dying. And it's for the person in the bed, for the family, and for the staff. We ask the family what the um, loved one loved, what they were like, tell us more about who they are, not who they were, who they are, And we try to create an atmosphere of supporting them as they make their journey into death. Though the pandemic challenged the Three Wishes team to find innovative wish-granting solutions, it also challenged the way they talked about death. After the pandemic, we talk more about the life um, that they led and how can we escort this this in, this part of life in. So I think our vocabulary has changed here. Our view has changed here. You know, being in Three Wishes, we view a person as a whole, not as a death, not as a disease, but as a whole life. And this is a part of their life. At the height of the pandemic, Kathy and her colleagues were left scrambling to comfort patients, especially when families weren't allowed to see their dying loved ones. We were the family with dying patients. And this is when we came up, you know, with our, we called it the tunnel of love, where we put hearts on a string and it's like the love is raining down on them. We were always there for them. Nobody died alone. There was a lot of deaths, a lot of uncertainty. But we as nurses and medical team, we were there. We were there for them. And it was an honor. Amazing grace, how sweet thy sound that saved. 
The Listening Well, How COVID Changed Everything was written and produced by Megan Donis and me. It featured work by Sitlale Chavez, Erka Mikkonen, Jen Byers, and Colton Lucas. Mixing, sound design, and editing was by Rebecca Katz. Story editing by Sandy Tolan. Episode editing by Sophia Palisa Carr. Engineering by Donald Paz. 